0: I'm Jamie Hurst, and for the MSU Denver Alumni Association, we're excited to bring you Bird Talk, a podcast about our alumni, their careers, and their lives.
1: How how long are we going?
0: Until we get it, until we get the story. We'll know it when we have it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's it. We're done. Well, good morning, Travis. Good morning, Jamie. I'm so excited to have you here today for our inaugural broadcast of Bird Talk.
1: Is that what we're calling it?
0: Well, so far, that's the working prototype. If you think of other ideas, just shout them out.
1: I'll send you an email later. I'm sure I'll have some.
0: Well, welcome, everyone. I'm Jamie Hurst.
1: I'm Travis Luther.
0: Excited to have you here. This is uh, a new and exciting venture, I think, for our alumni team and for the Alumni Association. And so really wanting to get at the heart of this idea of um, who is the MSU Denver student, what happens when you graduate, and what kind of impact has this institution had on you, but also what impact are you having on our communities? Because here at MSU Denver, as you know, we really pride ourselves on this idea that We serve Colorado. Mm -hmm. We are Colorado students. We stay here um, and we make an impact in this community, and it's about time people know about it.
1: Yeah, for sure. I would agree.
0: Well, let me introduce you quite a bit because you've got quite the um, bio for me to read here. So, Travis Scott Luther, we're getting the full name here for (laughs) you too. You're an entrepreneur and an author. You're the founder of Luther Media LLC, whose companies have included Trial Line, Valet Ads, Queen Anne Pillow Company, and Law Father. You are also a former frontman of the band Ultra Find.
1: Oh, you, you went deep. We went deep. Deep All cuts right. here.
0: Uh, I've got a great research team. <laughs> Travis is also an author, and Forbes.com called you the Retirement Abroad Authority with the release of The Fun Side of the Wall, an Amazon number one new release. Uh, you're the host of the Travis Luther, Travis Luther podcast, mm-hmm. so I'm in great company here. You are. So feel free to take it over if you need to at any <laughs> point in time. Uh, You're a former uh, entrepreneur-in-residence for the University of Colorado, Denver, a former adjunct professor here uh, of entrepreneurship at MSU Denver's College of Business, and a former president of the Entrepreneurs' Organization of Colorado. You currently sit on our alumni board of directors and are a member of the MSU Denver Foundation Board. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with the other, you know, 13 minutes a day?
1: (laughs) I try and parent.
0: (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) because, you know, you're married, have kids. But she'll explain why they're
1: in jail. (laughs) Well, but you know. <laughs> they're not really in yeah, jail. Obviously. I don't need child protective Obviously, services. well, what
0: did I miss? Or what is the most exciting thing when you hear that, that that you go, yeah, I did that?
1: As an entrepreneur, um, we have lots of ideas. <laughs> and um, when you are an entrepreneur and have had a little bit of success, you get to pursue more and more of those <laughs> ideas. You don't have to be fearful about the failure or the consequence of the failure. So. You know, certainly since um, I left at, at MSU as a student, I've had lots of opportunities to do that. And I'm just kind of grateful to hear that back and then be here on the podcast and see it kind of coming for full circle. Um, it's kind of like hearing your dreams come true. Right. You know, because all of those things are, I mean, those are so many great things that I wanted to accomplish in my life. And it's nice to hear them on the cusp of my 45th birthday that I got some of them done. Oh my gosh.
0: Right. I know. Um, I think about that. People always ask me when I I turned 40 last year they're like, Oh, what, have have you hit everything on your list? I was like, Oh, um, I didn't make a list. (laughs) I just knew where I wanted to be and what I wanted that to look like. Um, and so, but I think it's gotta be nice when you actually have a list. Um, and you can check some of that stuff off and say you're doing it and you still have half a life to go. That's right. right. Hopefully, hopefully,
1: I mean, with my You know, as Will Ferrell says, at my income level and advances in modern science, I could live to be 150, 200 years old.
0: Or just freeze you, take you back after that, (laughs) right? right. We know that our MSU Denver students come from all different walks in life. We pride ourselves on kind of being the institution that meets our students, as our president, Dr. Davidson, says Mm -hmm. on their zigzaggy path. So Mm -hmm. walk us through your zigzaggy path.
1: Oh um, well, my my mom was a teen mom, like a lot of uh, other students here. She got pregnant with me when she was fifteen, and by the time she was nineteen, she had me and my two younger brothers. So um, we didn't have a great start. Mm-hmm. Um, we lived in rural Washington. Um, we lived in a bunch of small towns um, uh, until my mom um, decided that she was going to go to college, which was which was a, a, a really cool thing for her to do. And so we moved to the town of Pullman, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, And she started college there. Um, And I started kind of my entrepreneurial journey at that time too. I, um, I, you know, we, we were low income. We were on food stamps. We got most of our Christmas presents from the salvation army and churches and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so I, you know, unfortunately had a real anxiety around money early on and, and really realized how little we had. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just started my mom called them schemes, but I just started scheming on <laughs> sure. ways that I could try and make some money because i you know, I mean, I remember that the I remember the first thing I ever really, really wanted in my life was a pair of Nikes, mm-hmm. and um I remember working really hard to get those. My grandmother had sent me a twenty five dollars gift certificate for j c Penny, and I needed another twenty five dollars <laughs> so yeah, so I just started, like, trying to look at opportunities to get money. Like, um, I would go collect people's recyclables in the neighborhood and then take them down to the recycling place. Um, I had paper routes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've told this story before. I'm sure you've heard it. But I stumbled upon um, becoming a uh, breeder of little mice to yep. feed the snakes at the local pet store, which was totally accidental. But really my first business sure. Um and so, uh, so yeah, so I was just always kind of trying to come up with things. And then I, th- I think as I got older, I realized that there's, there's kind of a double-edged sword to poverty because on one hand you don't have the resources that you need to, to, to elevate your status in life, and then on the other hand, a lot of people look down on you. And mm-hmm. so I definitely felt that. I felt that from, like my friends, parents, you know, mm-hmm. who just kind of assumed that I was the bad kid or that my brothers sure. were the bad kid, um, and. You know, would say things like, "My mom says I can't hang out with you," and yeah. and and just for like no mm-hmm. reason other than this, just kind of underlying suspicion of, of poor people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you know that kind of complicated my ability again to get ahead because I just really felt like I was on my own. But because of that, I got this really intense, strong will to succeed, yeah. and was really driven, probably in an unhealthy way, <laughs> to show, <laughs> to prove people wrong, right. right? Um, and to and to and to find ways to like stand up on my own, not only stand up on my own, but to stand above anyone else who had kind of ever put me down. Um, and that drive actually, I, I would say, served me very well for for a while until it no longer did.
0: Sure, a um, chip on your shoulder that's can only right. be effective right. until you get to the point where that you're right. like, I don't need it anymore. That's right. And it's that's a hard right. thing to do. That's yeah. That's
1: right. So that was kind of like the early start mm-hmm. for sure. Um, there was a period before I came to MSU where I thought I just was a terrible entrepreneur. You know, I couldn't seem to get anything really going. I could get traction, but I could never live off of it. So I'd be trying to start these businesses. I mean, very sophisticated businesses. At at one point, I had two cafes. And at night, I was still delivering pizza just to try and pay my own rent, you know. So I I was doing big things, but I wasn't having success. And I had really come to believe that I didn't have what it takes to be an entrepreneur. I'd even started college for... Um, a year or two at Washington State, also just trying to figure out what I was going to do. Dropped out of that, um, pursued a music career for a little bit, stopped that, came here basically as a concession from from Washington State saying, I don't have what it takes. All these people who told me I should give up on my dreams and go to college and think about having a real job were probably right. And so I moved to Denver and came to MSU.
0: So how did you find out about MSU?
1: (laughs) Um, I actually had got accepted to University of Colorado Denver because they had a music business and industry studies program and I thought maybe I would be an entertainment lawyer. Mm -hmm. I had just come off a couple years of touring the country in my band and thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. but uh, I started in a in a tuition exchange program I won't bore you with. But basically the I, could not, the
0: witchy yeah, so
1: I couldn't get in-state, <laughs> right? And I couldn't yeah. afford the the 150% or whatever the mm-hmm. compromise was. And I wasn't eligible for mm-hmm. some of the financial assistance I needed. So um, when I walked over to Metro, explained mm-hmm. the situation, had been here at that point long enough where they could give me residency, and I just transferred in.
0: That's awesome. And
1: at that point it was really – again like oh here we go again like i tried to go to k- school it's not working i'm just going to go to msu get whatever degree i can with this mismatch of credits that i have and and move on with my life mm-hmm. but really started having some transformative experiences at the university that put me back on the path i was always i always knew i was destined to sure. but didn't have the people around me to get me there and so when i talk about coming to msu i say you know, I used to think that I didn't have what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur until I got here and I realized I didn't have who it takes to become a su- successful entrepreneur. And so it was being around people in this institution and the clubs that I was involved in and the other students who shared my enthusiasm for entrepreneurship that, that really got me moving back and was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And when you when you attempt your dreams all on your own, it can be a pretty dark and lonely place. Sure. You do the same thing around other people who share your dreams and your enthusiasm. And it's a totally different experience.
0: I would have to imagine too, especially in the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial space where you fail so much more than you succeed. That's right. So that when you're in that status of failure over and over again, it becomes really easy to fall down that hole of like, mm-hmm. I can't do this. I can't hack it. I don't have it. So I would think even the community, yes, having those people, but also people to say, no, 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 you are supposed to fail this many times. You're actually on track for something. Yeah, It has to kind of reframe those last few years of your life to say, no, 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 I was moving in the right direction. Maybe just not at the big steps that I had in my head. If you don't know, you don't know, right?
1: Yeah. And, you know, I heard a quote later. It was, if you want to double your successes, you need to triple your failures. Mm-hmm. You know, I've also said before that in that period, I was not able to separate my business failures from my failure as uh, as a person, Sure. right? So if I had an idea that I tried to pursue and I didn't get traction on it or it just didn't work, I would think, God, Travis, you're stupid sure. and like you're a failure, Where really it was just the business or the execution or the circumstances Mm -hmm. or even things out of my control have caused businesses to fail in the past. So you really have to accept that these failures are not reflections on who you are as a person. In fact, they should buffer who you are as a person because, look, you're out there doing something. Everybody else is talking about it or if they even get as far as talking about it. But you're doing something and you should never – You should never get down on yourself for failing at anything that you've tried.
0: I have this conversation oftentimes, especially in the athletics context, you know, having been a former student athlete, still being very involved with Roadrunners Athletics here. We have that conversation all the time across the coaches where it's just you give feedback to a young student athlete saying, hey, your swing isn't where it needs to be or your shot's off or you're not focused here. What we've seen more and more of now in this time is that it's very hard for our students to translate that difference between I'm criticizing what you did, not who you are.
1: (laughs) My son's a baseball player too. Always remember, you are in the game. Right. Like, don't forget that. Right. (laughs) You may not be having the game of your life.
0: But you're but there. There's a
1: lot of people just watching. Right. And, and just because you, you have in a bad game.
0: swing doesn't mean you're a bad person right. or a bad athlete mm-hmm. or a bad this. And I think there's value in that because you want to have pride in your work. You want to have pride in the things that you are. And it does make up so much of who we are. But we have to find that middle ground of being able to say, no, this thing I did didn't work mm-hmm. or my effort here maybe wasn't great, but I'm still who I am yes. and I still have value to add in so many other places. Yeah.
1: I really like that. This thing I did didn't mm-hmm. work. Not yeah. I didn't work. Right. Thank God you figured it out right now right. rather than when it's really going to matter.
0: Right. You know? Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Uh, that is a very zigzaggy road. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to circle back to uh, touring the country for two years because yeah. I love this. So guitar <laughs> or bass?
1: Well, I was in two bands okay. actually. So one of them, uh, Ultra Find, the one mm-hmm. you referenced in the intro, um, I was the guitar player mm-hmm. and the singer in that band. Mm-hmm. And then I played bass uh, at another band called the Boss Martians.
0: Okay. Do you write music too?
1: I wrote all the songs. All the yeah. Songs. Well, not not for the Boss Martians, mm-hmm. but for ultra Find, yeah, yeah, I wrote all the songs.
0: So when you write your songs, I'm just always personally curious mm-hmm. of this. I play guitar. I used to sing. I used to gig a little bit back in college. Um mm-hmm. there's some deep cuts you could probably <laughs> dig up as well. Ooh, I might do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did you write lyrics first? Did you write melodies first? Did you get kind of the hook first and then go off of it? What was your strategy there?
1: Uh I just listened to the muse, mm-hmm. you know. Um basically I would kind of pick up a guitar, start kind of dinking around something would kind of come to Mm -hmm. me uh usually it would be uh it it might be the hook it Mm -hmm. might be a little part of the chorus it might just simply be like one line yeah and then i would just kind of hum around that and just um really work more with my intuition Mm -hmm. there's never been a song in my life that i ever sat down at a table (laughs) without a guitar wrote some words down Mm -hmm. or some idea grabbed the guitar tried to work the words around the song um, I and I know some people work like that. Mm-hmm. I just never could. Yeah I had to really feel it, mm-hmm. really receive it if you will sure and and, and kind of work on it work mm-hmm. on both the, the lyrics, the melody, and the guitar work at the same time.
0: So you didn't go to a bar, write 9 to 5, and Jolene on the same night on the back of a newspaper No, and, well, I
1: never had any of the – I wish I could. <laughs> I've I know, heard of, right? s- like, writers who everything has come to them in tw- 24 right, hours. Right, like, oh, know? I wrote
0: this entire album in three days. Right, so
1: it's like, <laughs> right, and they're just taping paper together, and it's just oh, – I haven't had right. that. Maybe it's because I didn't do drugs, you know. Maybe, like, maybe. I don't know, but um, – no, it was all very like organic, yeah. but I but I worked hard. Sure. You know, the, the, those periods. It's funny because. Um you know, I would get up at six in the morning, I would have my coffee and then, you know, I would walk my dog or whatever. And then I would be in my studio Mm -hmm. by eight o'clock sitting down with my guitar, my recorder. And, and it was like a job, you know, and then, and, and I really treated it that way. And then later I would go to my job, you know, waiting tables Mm -hmm. or whatever, bartending, whatever musicians do. And then, um, and then we would have a rehearsal with the full band and then Mm -hmm. we might play a show or go on the road. So, um, there is a huge misconception because these are sign bands right? right and there's there's you have to you have to pay for your your way on the road mm-hmm. you have to negotiate payments at clubs you have to sometimes chase people down to get your money sure. i mean it, it it's a job But mm-hmm. the misconception is it's a party every night right. you know booze and girls and all of that stuff and um there there's just like a real attention to like not getting sick mm-hmm. to making sure you get sleep um because when you're out for 30 60 90 days mm-hmm. like it takes a toll on your body and you just you can't you can't behave the way you see guns and roses in a music video. In that behave. moment. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Right. Well, yeah. And I think about that. I come from a very long line of musical family. Like mm-hmm. my like my brother, who's a professional performer and he'll be on vocal rest because he's doing eight shows a week. Mm-hmm. And I'll sit there and be like, just have a conversation with me. He's like, mm-hmm. You don't understand. Mm-hmm. And it's and it is a real transition to realize like I am my equipment. Mm-hmm. I am my instrument. That's right. Um, what I love hearing about that, because I think it's very relevant to you also being an author, <laughs> is this idea that you did approach that as a job. Mm-hmm. The number one thing I always hear from people that are like, oh, yeah, I write on the side or I do music on the mm-hmm. side. You're not going to find the success in the time frame that you want if it's a side gig for right. you. You have to commit. You have to be in that space. What I'm hearing, though, is that actually a lot of the mentality and the, the way that we approach it has to be the same. That was your job. You mm-hmm. were a musician for that time. Yeah. And so you got up, it's still at 6 a.m. You had your, your routine, you did what you needed to do to write your songs, to practice what it is. And then I imagine on the flip side as an author too, you can't just come home from work and write a couple chapters in a book and think that we're going to get somewhere. So I assume in your writing process, it was also kind of all in.
1: Yeah. It was we were discussing offline earlier before we started recording about writing and Mm -hmm. and authors and some of the challenges that they go through. But um, it it, same thing with my book. You know, it was just like a business. Okay, who's my audience? Mm -hmm. What problem does this solve for them? What do I need to put together to solve that problem? How much will they pay for me to solve that problem, and where will I tell them that I have a solution to their problem? Mm -hmm. So you know that gets kind of marked out first, and then you know it was a. I have a couple books, but that Mm -hmm. that that one is the only one published so far, and it was very much the same process. Mm -hmm. I I set aside four hours every morning just on that. Mm -hmm. Um, I scheduled that like I would have scheduled any other client. There was no moving it. I, mm-hmm. if it said writing block then and someone called and said, Hey, can we it meet at nine thirty? I would say no, I already have an appointment. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to tell them what it was, sure. but I had to treat it like another customer, mm-hmm. right? And give it just that same amount of importance. Um, and so, yeah, I had to, I had to have a practice,
0: <laughs> right, right. Know, I mean,
1: and do it, and then hire, uh, just like you would in a business. You know, I hired professionals to support me mm-hmm. in that process. You know, editors and and marketers and stuff like that. So, um, yeah.
0: And so your book, just to fill the mm-hmm. audience in, is about how to retire overseas, right? Not overseas necessarily.
1: Well, yeah. I so what I the book to me is mm-hmm. about community mm-hmm. and uh, the commodification of retirement in the United States yep. and how that has driven some of our brightest and most affluent retirees mm-hmm. to Mexico, yeah. where they've found more authentic community mm-hmm. and the support that they want in their later years in yeah. life, as well as the autonomy to dictate what they do in their retirement rather than moving to sun village or Mm -hmm. whatever and being shuffled over to shuffleboard and then quilted. Yeah. Yeah. mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. So, um, but it is about um, it is about uh, over 500 baby boomers Mm -hmm. who left the United States. And what I was curious to find out is why, Mm -hmm. you know, we hear a lot, um, of rhetoric here that the United States has the best of everything and there's no need to ever question that mm-hmm. and I got a little suspicious at some point that maybe that was the case. Anytime there's a definitive
0: statement that <laughs> right. says this is it and I'm the best yeah. it's like. Mm.
1: I'm a contrarian by nature <laughs> right. so. Um, uh, so that's what the book is about, yeah. Good. So it's not a how-to guide on how to retire mm-hmm. in Mexico, but it's uh, more of an exploration of why people yeah. have decided that that's better than what's here. In the, you know, I visited like 11 different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a it was a pretty lengthy project. Yeah. So um, I got to see a lot of the country and a lot of these little villages um, of expats and mm-hmm. talk to them and figure out how they're living and why. And I I will tell you, I fell in love with it too. Sure. And I definitely have plans to have a place in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, I Not just... I mean, I fell in love with Mexico. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with Mexicans, the Mexican Mm -hmm. culture. I mean, I really connected with why these people were making the move that they did. And I didn't start that way, right? Right. Like, I really thought I was going to find a bunch of low-income people Mm -hmm. who couldn't afford to live in the United States and that that's why they went to Mexico. And I was just, like, blown away. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I realized I'd found something important, like – I, I went in like all in, yeah. you know, like, I'm like, wow, I had my own personal discovery and revelation, <laughs> right? This is really important work. I'm I'm going to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think about that when we think not knowing I've got many years till retirement to have to deal with this, but we spend so much of our life, especially here in America, when we have jobs, when we have families, we're raising kids in schools, you know, doing all the things that we need to do. We have the community when we're actively working. Soon as we retire, kids move away. This happens. We we lose that community. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the most important time to have that community yeah. <laughs> when you're getting older, when you're ailing, when conversation becomes so much more important because it might be the thing you do that day. Mm-hmm. And so it makes a lot of logical sense and it really and makes me flip on it. Like we, we do this totally backwards. Here, and it
1: extends your life and right? it extends your health. Right. I mean the the data in the book. You can read that mm-hmm. how, about how much longer people live when they have a community and, and purpose. Um, so it's not uh, it's not just to pass your days, mm-hmm. but it's to make, have more of <laughs> them, them more. and make yeah. them better. Yeah, yeah. Well,
0: that's awesome.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I have another book that I've just started. Part of my story that we we didn't talk about is my father was also an alcoholic and mm-hmm. a drug addict, and he died when he was thirty eight years old, and um, all he had left in the world was this little blue box that. Uh, he he left me. And that was full of pretty much nothing but letters, Mm -hmm. cards, things he had collected um, uh, over his short 38 years of life. Um, But, you know, I didn't know a lot about a lot of his life Mm -hmm. because um, he lived in California. We lived in Washington. Um, I did live with him for one year in junior high, but he wasn't Really, the kind of person in the kind of position who could take care of children. So, yeah. we did try a couple times and it didn't work out. But um, it's been kind of a fascinating study because I've looked at that box more as like an archaeological examination mm-hmm. of a stranger's life. Yeah. And I've got everything organized by year and where, and I'm starting to piece together where he worked and, and where picturing was I. a murder I. board,
0: you know? It, like, it's, all, it's all, all on you know? my floor yeah, yeah, in my yeah.
1: office, but it's exactly what yeah. it looks like. And it, it has been a fascinating study. And that is kind of a book that I'm working on now yeah. about, uh, I, I, I kind of jokingly say, mm-hmm. time travel, mm-hmm. forgiveness, and empathy. Yeah. And uh, it's really given me a much more empathetic view of my parents, their relationship, the things that they went through, mm-hmm. um, what it's like to be teenagers right. <laughs> with, three right. with three kids. Yeah. I mean, you, you at my age with my children, you know, you, you start to develop a, bigger sense of forgiveness mm-hmm. around why people act the way they do. But certainly ask yourself, how could 15-, 16-, 17-year-olds ever be expected to to, to be good parents mm-hmm. in the circumstances that they were in themselves, sure. which weren't perfect? My mother had a – her mother was schizophrenic, mm-hmm. uh, created a lot of uh, drama in the house, mm-hmm. and she didn't have a diagnosis for that. My mm-hmm. father actually was one of probably one of the last people to get polio mm-hmm. um, as a fluke. Yeah. Uh, uh, during some travel right after he was born, Mm -hmm. just trying to get him home. And so, you know, he developed his, his drug habit as a (laughs) child, you know, really. And so, um, and these are things I hadn't spent too much time thinking about.
0: Yeah. I Uh, would imagine too, like having a parent pass so young. I mean, I think of now being past 38, you're past 38. Those first 38 years, I hope are not what people are going to measure me by. Right. We hope that we have the next 38 or the next 20 or whatever that is to say, here's what we did. Here's what we've learned from. And here's now how we've turned that on the side. And we've learned things like empathy and and compassion. And now we're trying to be more in a giving space than in a taking space. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's just unfortunate when he didn't get that second chance to take what he learned and move on. And so then looking at it from the outside, it's like, oh, gosh, no, I need to have even more empathy for that situation Mm -hmm. because he just hadn't gotten there yet.
1: Yeah. It's funny you say that because look, I have a 38 tattoo Mm -hmm. on my arm Mm -hmm. and I got this when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And to me, what it meant was I want to work as hard as I can to be the best person I can and get as much done as I can by the time I turn 38. Mm -hmm. Because when I have my 38th birthday, I want to really be able to say, if I die today, I've lived. And it was a big driver for me Before I was 38. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now I'm just counting down the days going, God, why am I still here? (laughs) Um, But But, uh, there's something to that for sure. It's like, because I just think, and then especially as you pass 38, Mm -hmm. you just think, God, how young was he? You know what I mean? And what did he miss out on? And like, what kind of life was that to have been so miserable and so addicted and Mm -hmm. so sick? That, you know, by the time you were 38, it was over. Right. You know, it's, I mean, sounds very young.
0: Mm-hmm. Very young. Yeah. I agree. This episode is brought to you by the Blue Jay. Delightful, but not sad. So one of the things uh, that I think I want to go back to, uh, you mentioned that at MSU Denver, you realized that it wasn't that you lacked what you needed mm-hmm. to be a successful entrepreneur is that you lack the people around you. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to kind of circle back to that idea. Once you figured that out, and now you're surrounded in a space and you said you uh, participated in some clubs, mm-hmm. you had faculty mentors, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. And what, uh, what in that situation really propelled you to be like, okay, I have what I need, and then launched you?
1: Yeah, I, I would say it's just outside validation. Because if we go back to that idea of as a kid, no one really supported me or believed in me. And I would say, you know, my family included, not in any kind of malicious way. But when you're poor, all your your time is spent just like trying to survive. So there's no conversations about like, hey, you're going to go to college or let's talk about your idea or how can I help? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there is no outside validation. I think one of the big moments for me in my life was um, I joined the marketing club mm-hmm. uh, at nights. I was working as a valet parking cars down in Cherry Creek. And I got this idea like I'm passing out these blank valet tickets. Like why not put advertising on mm-hmm. these valet tickets and give them to all these rich people who can afford to buy stuff? And so, you know, long story short, I, I turned that into a real business, which I presented to the marketing club. And the marketing club had a relationship with the American Marketing Association, who sponsored a contest. Mm-hmm. And so we all pitched our ideas to the American Marketing Association, who came on campus mm-hmm. and did this show. And I pitched mine, and I won. Mm-hmm. I don't Actually, I don't know if I won. I, I won some award. I don't of know. Sure. I won something. But anyway. You um, were a winner. I was a was. winner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and this, I may be old enough that this was when not everybody was a winner. Sure. So it meant something sure. that I was Red pins,
0: not green pins. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: but I won this award. I won this acrylic thing that I could put on my desk. And, and it was outside validation mm-hmm. from somebody besides myself who said, yes, you have a great idea and it's uh, worth recognizing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, and that, that just like fueled me. You know, to Mm -hmm. start thinking about how I could grow that business. And it was in growing that business that um, I got some of the ideas and the learning that I needed to start some of my other businesses. And so it was really a a snowball effect from there. But most importantly, it was being able to say, I'm good, Mm -hmm. you know, which was not something I said to myself. No, lot I don't think that. many
0: of us say that to <laughs> ourselves. Uh, and it usually takes some sort of external affirmation, which is tough. And I think obviously once we get that, then it becomes a little bit easier to, to make those demarcations between I'm good. This wasn't good. Mm-hmm. I think that's wonderful that you had that, that you had that as a student and that MSU Denver was a part of mm-hmm. providing you that opportunity um, or at least exposing you to it. Right. Yeah. Um, those relationships that we have with companies with, in this case, um, the American Marketing Association, mm-hmm. whether it's professional development organizations, that is, that is, I think, one of those areas in uh, higher ed that is so unique is that we are actively trying to find ways to partner students mm-hmm. <laughs> with these bigger things so that they can realize, oh, I can put my foot through the threshold yep. and I'll be accepted in some way. And it sounds like you had exactly that experience. That was
1: it. That was it. And I think that's even more important in this community of students whose background largely reflects my own mm-hmm. We got to be the place that shows people what they're capable of, you know. And, and, uh, you know, some of the work I've done with the school since then has been solely focused on Mm -hmm. that, that you are worthy Mm -hmm. of (laughs) of mentorship and you are worthy of a quality education and uh, you are worthy of a safe place to try your ideas, fail, and succeed, but that you're worthy to be supported.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and I think with that is like this idea of equitable access to that, right? I mean, when we think about – Um, coming from, you know, situations of poverty or situations where you don't have that inherent network around you. Mm -hmm. Your dad wasn't surrounded by other businessmen that were Mm -hmm. telling you something or giving you an internship or giving you a a quick opportunity to make some cash. You were having to create your schemes to do all Mm -hmm. this stuff on your own. You don't have that inherent network built in there. And especially we look at our student population, over half of which are first generation. Mm -hmm. Their parents don't have that alumni network or the friends they met in college that are in these spaces. And so being a kind of a pillar for that place to say, oh, no, anybody, mm-hmm. even whether you come in with a network or not, you're now going to have equitable access to these resources that are going to give you that network and and do it pretty quickly for you because mm-hmm. that's what we're actually here to do. Right. We say that we do it. We're intentional on doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think we can see that even, what, 10, 15 years ago when you were here, we were doing it then. So yep. it's not a new fad that we're jumping into. No, <laughs> We've no. constantly tried to provide um, access for all people To be able to get what they need in order to propel themselves, right? Yeah, for sure. So you stayed connected with the institution. Obviously, you went off. You started a few businesses. Yeah. And then we said, Travis, come back. I was going to
1: say I didn't stay connected. (laughs) I I was connected to the institution who kept pulling me back. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, which is also which is also great, Mm -hmm. actually. To be honest with you, I mean, it's really you know I started school at Washington State University in in Pullman, Washington, and it's massive compared Mm to um, MSU. Uh, I think what I've always loved about MSU and when I actually, you know, my wife and I attended a, uh, an event yesterday uh, celebrating another Uh, person who has done great things for the university. But, um, you know, when we left, we were reflecting on what we love about continuing to be involved in this institution as you can bring your own ideas about how you want to serve and what you want to do. And you have an opportunity to do that. And I don't think that's always the case at other bigger schools where it feels like there's a lot of bureaucracy. You know, there's a lot of students. It just can kind of be overwhelming. And MSU has so much flexibility for their alumni to get what they want and if they don't see what they want they can create their own path or program.
0: Yeah. And I'd even say beyond alumni, I say, I jokingly, um, I've been here for 10 years, uh, working at MSU Denver. And obviously in that time I took classes, earned a degree here as well, because why not? I teach, um, and I'm involved in the alumni association. So I always kind of mark myself as like, I've had all the roadrunner experiences. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I've been a student, I've been an alum, Mm -hmm. I've been a faculty member, I've been a staff member. Um, I, I love this institution. And, but I think the only reason that I can say that I've done all those things is because they're open Mm -hmm. for people to have all those experiences experiences. Mm -hmm. But I've been saying for 10 years that people say, Oh, what's your favorite thing about working here? I was like, Oh, people don't say no. Mm-hmm. They don't say no. If you have a good idea, mm-hmm. if you've thought it through, you've researched it and you have that, like, what problem am I going to solve? Who am I going to solve it for? Mm-hmm. Can I make this happen? Mm-hmm. And you have to get strategic with resources, right? Because yep. we are a very underfunded institution from the state. Yep. Uh, and I think Colorado now is 49th in the nation in terms of funding from the state. <laughs> I yesterday,
1: which is unbelievable. It's just horrible, just right? unbelievable. But
0: we're finding ways to be strategic and creative with what we have to be able to provide what people need. Mm-hmm. And I can't be presumptive to say that I know what your engagement with this institution needs to look like. Mm -hmm. But I need to have the ability to ask you and then say, how can we make that work, right? Uh, And I do think that we're very unique in that situation. Higher ed globally is... Very rigid, it's mm-hmm. very bureaucratic, it's very formulaic. I always joke with a lot of my colleagues in my space that if Harvard came calling and said, Oh, come and run fundraising at Harvard, I'd be like, Never in a million years, because they have a perfect formula for what they need mm-hmm. to do. This is the mail piece you send on this day, this is the people that you talk to for the endowment, this mm-hmm. is what you do. I would break everything <laughs> because they have tradition in what they do, they have expectations in that space, and there's certain things that people want. What I love about here. We'll open it up to whatever needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a great idea. This is a way we can engage people. We can tell them more about MSU Denver. We can help build the reputation of our institution by telling the stories of our students, our faculty, our staff. We find a way to make it happen. So, <laughs> um, But you did do a little teaching here as well. I did right? a lot of teaching. Yeah.
1: A lot more than I had ever planned on, yeah. for sure. And that actually goes back to just how much I love these students here, mm-hmm. you know. Um I uh, another you know time I was pulled back in as I, I uh, we were starting the Center for Innovation, which was our mm-hmm. precursor to the entrepreneurship major that we have now. And a woman I was actually in marketing mm-hmm. club with had gone on to graduate and then later be hired by MSU. Yeah. And it was very exciting. And so she had reached out to me and said, hey, you might make a great mentor for this program that we're doing. And so I came down and started talking to her. And she's so good at what she does that by the time the conversation was over, she had me agree to teach a class. Sure.
0: That's how we roll here. <laughs> yeah. And then she
1: <laughs> called me a few hours later and said, would you like to teach another one? I yeah. said, how many can I teach? <laughs> you know, if I'm going to be down there anyway. Yeah. And she said, well, you could teach three and be full-time adjunct. Yeah. And I said, okay. And I really believe that I what I was agreeing to was they were going to give me the books, the syllabus, the mm-hmm. quizzes, the tests, and I was just uh-huh. going to have to read the material and go mm-hmm. deliver it to the kids. Yeah, not at all. I mean, it, I had to make everything, mm-hmm. right, yep. which I was not prepared for. And so that first semester was really hard. But by the time I got to the second semester, I I, I had some good material and a good rhythm. And I couldn't quit, mm-hmm. you know, because these students, it wasn't like they were just one off. They were in a program with mm-hmm. me. They had to take four classes, three of which I taught. And I loved them and they loved me. And they mm-hmm. just were always like, well, see ya. Next semester, Mr. Luther yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And and I was, okay. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm gonna stay. And that turned into, I think, like four years. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and really the only reason I left was because they decided that the program would be so successful that yeah. they were gonna make it a major. And I thought, okay, this is probably my time to get out of right. here because they were gonna have to stop it for a year to kind of refinagle the the curriculum. Um, but I, I just wanted to be, going back to, you know, the double-edged sword mm-hmm. of poverty, and not only are you isolated and by yourself, but no one else really wants to, is, wants to be there mm-hmm. for you because they're suspicious of you or whatever. I wanted to be the guy that I always wanted to have yeah. when I was a teenager and a young man. And that really became my purpose, mm-hmm. was to be that guy.
0: And I think the value that comes with that is what we – those of us that work in higher ed know – to be the secret sauce, right? It's not about necessarily the curriculum, the books that you're reading and the things that are happening there. Those things are all very important and they make a huge impact, but it's how it's presented, how it is taught and how um, the sense of um, kind of connection and community, again, it gets Mm -hmm. back to this community that our students and our faculty can have with each other Mm -hmm. so that it can say like, I'm trusting that you wanna learn this Mm -hmm. and I need you to trust that I wanna teach you this. And so it, it may look weird at times, you might get bad grades here, you might have to say, no, this was wrong. But we're going to do this journey together so that you get what you need out of this. And it's more than just the knowledge. It's how do I behave in these mm-hmm. situations, right? It's the, it's all those soft skills that employers tell us that they want. Um, time management, communication skills. They want eye contact, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want those intangible things. We can learn all of those things in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and more than anything, the critical thinking part of that. Um, if I'm just walking into a course that a quiz has already been made for me, all these things, and I'm just regurgitating information and making that happen. I'm not being a critical thinker as a faculty member. So then how the heck can I expect our students to be in that space? And so I think your perspective of walking in to say, I want to be who I needed mm-hmm. allowed for so much more than just the instruction of the content. And I think the value there is huge. So thank you for doing that. Yeah,
1: it was great for me. I mean, on in in some ways, actually, it's funny. Somebody mm-hmm. reached out to me on LinkedIn who said, I'm thinking about becoming an adjunct. Would you mind talking to me about it? And I went over the time commitment mm-hmm. and, and all of the stuff. I mean, the real, the the I don't want to say challenges, but the mm-hmm. truth of what it takes to be a professor. Mm-hmm. And when all that was done, I said, I would totally do it again. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that I was sharpest in my own business, in my own life, when I was required to teach other people sure. how to be sharp. Sure. And... And then also the the energy that I got from the students mm-hmm. filled me back up because I my office was downtown and I just mm-hmm. had to kind of walk across the street to get back to work. But I I went back to work with so much more energy mm-hmm. than I had before I had started the day. But I think what the students really appreciated about me was my similar background to mm-hmm. them. And so I was not teaching out of I was teaching out of books, but I wasn't teaching a formula. Mm-hmm. I was saying, "Here are the concepts." Now, also, this is how I really did it. Yeah, this is how I really did it without money. Mm-hmm. This is how I really yeah, right. balanced having two jobs. You mm-hmm. know, and like this is what it's going to take for you guys to do that too. Um, and so there was just an authenticity mm-hmm. between us that was really powerful and has served a lot of my students well. I've seen them go off and actually be able to execute. And I don't know that that always happens at traditional business school with kids who haven't had those backgrounds and haven't had to fight for for what they want. I don't know that they always leave their entrepreneurship programs and actually go start things, but I've seen my kids do it, and that's the best.
0: You know, it makes me think of another one of our colleagues that we work with, um, Leon Duran, who Mm -hmm. actually is an alum that sits on the alumni board uh, with you as well. Um, And I think you actually brought Leon into the fold because you've got to know him Mm -hmm. um, kind of as a mentor in the Mm -hmm. entrepreneurship space. So um, many people familiar with Leon as we're kind of featuring his story over the course of the next few years. Um, But one of the most recent interviews we did with him, he talked about owning a couple businesses that he owns now and being a full-time MBA student. He, I think the comment he made was that he's like, I feel bad for these kids in my classes that don't have a business because as we're learning something in the classroom, I just take it over to my business and I execute it on that space. He's like, and then I look at some of these students that don't have that, and I think, oh, gosh, you're missing out on seeing – where the hiccups are, what Mm -hmm. things I need to think of, what is specific to me in this space that makes it a little bit different, all those real world things. And Mm so I think it's wonderful when we have students that are working and learning so they can apply those things, but even more so having the faculty that can say, here's actually what I did. Mm -hmm. Here's where I fell on my face. Mm -hmm. Here's the lessons I wish I would have known. It's just an incredible value.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think we'll see more of that hopefully in education Mm -hmm. that we will look at both the credentials and the experience Mm -hmm. with equal excitement Mm -hmm. and enthusiasm Yeah, Um, because not much gets done in the Mm -hmm. ivory tower except (laughs) watching.
0: Right. And
1: I don't think we're the kind of institution that wants to just watch. I think we want to do, and we want to see our students do, you know, like you Mm -hmm. said, we want to have an impact in this community Mm -hmm. where we sit in the heart of Mm -hmm. this community. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of that with how the university's priorities are shifting. And even as we're, you know, creating new majors or adapting new majors to the changing needs, we're being, we have an ear out for what does Denver need? What does Colorado need? And we're adjusting our programs and services to make sure we're meeting their needs. But then we're also equipping and, you know, getting ready to launch these students into the space. Like I think about our health institute that is getting off the ground. That is a direct response to the fact that we don't have healthcare providers in the mm-hmm. state of Colorado and the numbers that we need to be able to provide the care that it currently exists, let alone what we're projecting to see over the next five to 10 That's years. Right. So let's do that. Let's educate those folks. Let's provide them the credentialing that they need to be successful in that space. But let's do it in a way that is very much at the heart of what the future is going to look at in that space. Mm-hmm. So it is a very holistic approach to that. It is a very interdisciplinary look at what are all the things that go into the healthcare decisions that we make for you. Um, so you leave MSU Denver, you start businesses, you come back, you teach and your first way of saying, Hey, I want to stay connected. And a value that I have to bring is with your time, mm-hmm. right? So you're in the classroom that then expands a little bit more. when We're like, Hey, join a couple of our boards. Mm-hmm. So now you're in kind of a supervisory kind of management space to help us gear our strategic kind of path for how we engage other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and recently you just joined our foundation board as a part of that. Mm-hmm. And so our foundation board, which really is our philanthropic um, board of directors that help guide Um, how we raise the money and the funds that we need to meet the university's strategic plan. Mm -hmm. We just launched our new strategic plan that says, you know, we are really going to hit on on five key areas. And now it is the responsibility of the foundation board to say, how are we going to help fund that? Mm -hmm. What has that experience been to be in that space now where it's not just about what are we doing, but now it's the the bigger picture of how are we going to make that happen?
1: It's frightening. Yeah. I mean, it, and it's frightening in the sense that, um, you know, I never was required in any of the roles that I had to dig into what the financial picture for the university looked like. I had no understanding of how the state supported students and how what role tuition was versus out external mm-hmm. funding or fundraising or the generosity of donors or the partnerships between corporations. I <laughs> right. mean, it, it was a big eye-opener. But I say that it was frightening in the sense that there is so much – vulnerability in the university's budget compared to what I imagined. Mm -hmm. And there's so much that has to come from donors and other partners that isn't just generated from tuition uh, or from the state assistance. Um, And I think more people really need to understand that and recognize that because when we call ourselves a state school, in no way means that we are taken care of by the state. And it is really horrifying because, especially when we're a place that is serving those people who need us the most and need this assistance the most, and and the state likes to tout on us mm-hmm. and say how grateful they are for us doing that, but doesn't really show up with the checkbook in the right. way that you you think they would. So, it has really brought new enlightenment to me, I guess I would say, about what the how how the, how the finances of a university are structured, and and probably new determination to see. All right. What I really need to try and help make some big moves here if I'm gonna, you know, if I'm gonna sit in these seats, I need to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I haven't always done that. (laughs) You know, I mean, I've I've sat on the seats because I like to hear what's going on Mm -hmm. and I like to offer my opinion when I can. But now I feel this real calling to kind of get to work Mm -hmm. and to and to find some ways that I can make a bigger difference in what's going on with the school. And I would ask any other alumni that are hearing this, you know, to to just think about that one little thing you could do, whether it's time or treasure, mm-hmm. but don't pretend that your time here is over, or that you don't have a role, or that you can't play a big enough role. So don't even try. Just, just start small and do something. I mean, that's the way I did it. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't leave college a millionaire, um, but I still found a way to get involved. Right. You know, so yeah, that I would encourage. Alums to do that. If you believe in higher education in this state, and you believe what MSU is doing, you you have a role to play,
0: and you should play it. And I think there is that legacy component, right? We do oftentimes we leave our alma mater, and for those of us that move on to different mm-hmm. jobs, and we don't really think about how can we stay engaged. I think one of those reminding those those areas that we can remind people on is that. You're a part of something that hundred and five thousand other people have done. Mm-hmm. There will presumably be another hundred and five thousand people in mm-hmm. our lifetime that will continue to do this as well. And there's a legacy aspect there. So be a part of that, right? Yeah. I think this is where I need to call on your chip on the shoulder to be like, hey, people <laughs> said MSU Denver can't do it. And now you just need to own it and be like, no, we're gonna do it. That's right, <laughs> right? That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah. We we all kind of have a chip on our mm-hmm. shoulder as roadrunners, I think, or a chip in our beak, maybe. <laughs> there you go. Trademark TravisLuther.com. Um <laughs> I mean, it's just silly. It's, you know, they say this thing like, oh, if you gave up one cup of coffee mm-hmm. a month or whatever, but if you think yeah. 100,000 alums yep. give $100 mm-hmm. a year. I mean, that is a massive impact, which probably doesn't, you know, on the personal side, I mean, that's what, $7.50 mm-hmm. a month. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it could make a tremendous difference mm-hmm. to thousands, tens of thousands of students.
0: And the entire state as and a whole, the entire to be state. honest. Because yeah. we think about... You know, we often say about 65% of our alums, that 105,000 piece, are within 25 miles of where we're Mm -hmm. sitting right now. They don't leave Denver. Mm -hmm. So you're hiring people. Mm -hmm. You're hiring managers at firms. You're looking for talent. There's no way that you're not going to run into an MSU Denver Mm -hmm. alum or student at some point in time during the course of every day. Mm -hmm. I I feel really confident that Mm -hmm. I can say that. Um, and so, yeah, that small contribution on your portion can actually come back and help us tenfold, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But the reality is we do have 105,000 alums. Um, guess how many make a gift every year?
1: Well, Jamie, let me see. <laughs> Having not been on the board, and know it.
0: About 5% of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's in a perfect world, mm-hmm. right? So we're dealing in that, our, you know, uh, this year, our, our goal this year is about 2,500 alums to make a, don- mm-hmm. a donation. And that's any donation. That's mm-hmm. not start us a scholarship, pay for this. Mm-hmm. That is a... donation to whatever program that you want. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there is great opportunity there. Uh, And we are uniquely situated and poised to be able to reach so many alums because they are so uh, near. But some of it is just making sure we're hitting them with the message that they want to hear. And I think for you, um, it was, hey, I really loved my entrepreneurial experience. I needed something. MSU never gave it to me. They showed me that people matter. And now you translated that to I can be that person that matters for someone else. Mm -hmm. We got to figure out what that secret sauce is for everybody else that left here. Yeah. So get to work on that. I'll think Let about it. Let me know it. when your entrepreneurial <laughs> brain figures it out, and then we'll execute on it.
1: <laughs> but if you are an alum and you're listening, mm-hmm. yes. don't wait. Don't. don't wait for me or Jamie to come up mm-hmm. with a great idea. Just mm-hmm. come up with your own idea or yeah. just make the call or just get on the website and right. just give the 5 bucks or the 25 bucks. Right. Just, Just don't wait for us.
0: Right, right. Just do
1: it. And if there's
0: things you want to do with that, too, like say, hey, here's what I'd actually love to see on campus. Mm -hmm. We can facilitate those things because, like we said, we're a very flexible institution that recognizes that we need to ebb and flow with what the needs are um, in our society, for our students, for the students that we serve. So Mm -hmm. let's figure out what those programs look like. Let's figure out what the opportunities are. Yeah. Okay, we do have some rapid fire questions. You're mm-hmm. the first one to answer these. So. Okay, yeah. does
1: everyone get the same questions? They do. Okay.
0: So yours better be. better. So
1: I'm setting a little bit of what we call t- precedent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay.
0: Yeah. you are going to be your benchmark.
1: So. All right. <clears throat> All
0: right. Your favorite MSU Denver memory.
1: Oh, okay. These are not. Yep. These are subjective. <laughs> They're not trivia. Okay. Mm-hmm. My favorite MSU Denver memory. Um, I, one of the first alumni events I was invited to was a VIP basketball game during homecoming. This was many years ago before I even knew you guys. Mm -hmm. And somehow my number got drawn to take the half court shot or one of the shots Mm -hmm. and I made it. No,
0: you didn't. That's awesome. (laughs) And now
1: if you make it, you get a $2,500 scholarship. Mm -hmm. I got a (laughs) t-shirt. So this is to show you how much progress we've made, but it was so exciting. Yeah, is. it was so exciting. So that, that I mean, it was cool because I, I hadn't really been an MSU sports fan, per yeah. se. When I came back to school, I was older. I mm-hmm. think I already had a kid and another yeah. kid on the way. So, But it was really fun to come to the Nest, um, mm-hmm. to kind of feel kind of VIP, to mm-hmm. hang out with other alums, to really see the the, the players playing, mm-hmm. um, and then to to have the excitement of, quarter. oh, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. it was awesome.
0: Um, what does it mean to you to be a roadrunner?
1: Um, you know, to be a roadrunner, I'll tell you this, when I see other people in roadrunner gear, I see them at the grocery store, I've even ran into some in Mexico, mm-hmm. I, it means that I know that these are tenacious, hardworking folks who care tremendously about themselves. Mm-hmm. And I always love seeing that because I know that to come to this institution and to get through this institution generally means that you have battled some things in your life, uh, whether that's just working you know, just having to work and go to school, being in the military or going to school, being a parent or going to school, or just being someone who sometimes just doesn't know what you want, but knows but knows that you need to go to school and try and figure that out. So, I, the, being a road runner to me means being a tenacious learner who's dedicated to success and believes in themselves.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I've never
1: met a graduate who hasn't
0: displayed had some <clears throat>
1: some some mm-hmm. set of those values.
0: You know? Yeah. If you could put a billboard on campus mm-hmm. with a piece of advice for all students to see, what would it say?
1: Hmm. I know the billboard I want to put up.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait, what, which is about that we have money for you to finish. Yeah. And to say, so, you know, to say something along the lines that like the, the finish line is just around the corner, right? Yeah. Like you you will be done. Yeah. And when you're done, it will be the greatest feeling in your life. Because yeah. probably that my second, well, my real best memory is honestly going to be walking across the stage and, and Dr. Jordan shaking my hand and giving my diploma yeah. after two colleges and 10 years, yeah. or no, three colleges, yeah. sorry, in 10 years. Yeah. I mean, that was a fantastic feeling. So the billboard would say the finish line is just around the corner. And it would probably have the faces of 105,000 yeah. other roadrunners who had made it uh, somewhere on there. That's um, very cool. Because it will happen. Yeah. And, and you won't believe how great it feels. Mm-hmm.
0: And you're right, we do have the money to help, too. That's one of the things mm-hmm. we hadn't talked about. But one of the initiatives that the Alumni Board has taken on is uh, we have ourselves a, a, the Finish Lane Scholarship, which is a huge endowment, honestly, based on the, the size of the endowments that we have for all, the entire foundation. It's one of the larger ones.
1: Yeah, we have $250,000 to help students who are within two semesters of graduating finish.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, there's no credit check. The only thing you have to do is raise your hand and say, I, I, if not for this money, I won't finish, and we will give you the money and you can finish.
0: Because being able to finish and having that be right around the corner mm-hmm. matters. That it, changes their life. It changes their family's life. It changes our community's life.
1: And, and if you're within two semesters, I mean, your opportunity for income as a professional is greatly increased by a million dollars if you just simply finish and have a bachelor's degree. Right. That's the difference between having a high school diploma and a bachelor's mm-hmm. degree. And we have a quarter million dollars to help people do that,
0: which goes a long way.
1: Here. A ton. Yeah, it go very
0: far. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Travis. That's it. Just three. That's it. If I don't want to go. Are, it's okay. Here's the deal. <laughs> I have
1: two teenage boys. I, get I just it. want to stay here. Well, I want to thank my guest, Jamie Hurst, <laughs> Ath- uh, athlete of the year, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. twenty 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 three. All right.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of Bird Talk, special accommodation provided by University Advancement. Thank you to Ruby Matheny, Brandy Wrightout, Heather Holzbauer-Schweitzer, and Andy Schlifting. Production provided by David Sharman, and I'm your host, Jamie Hurst. Keep running, Roadies.